TED Audio Collective. Hey there, Minutian Jen. It's Corey. I'm here wrapping up a project for your Stable Genius newsletter. This is Corey Brown. He's a newsletter consultant. Yes, that's a thing. And a couple months ago, we here at Stable Genius Productions hired him to help us deliver better newsletters to you, dear listeners. Now, Corey is a total mensch. He is all about making sure journalists offer value to their readers, not spammy crap. Anyway, on one of our calls about things like open rates and subheaders, Corey mentioned how obsessed he is with the business philosophies of this guy named Ari Weinswag, which kind of surprised us since, as we learned, Ari Weinswag isn't the founder of a Silicon Valley startup or anything. Ari is the founder of a deli. Zingermans, if you live in Michigan, maybe you're nodding to yourself right now. This spring, my wife and I stopped at Zingerman's, the deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that was co-founded by Ari. While we were shopping, I noticed there was a table of Ari's books and pamphlets. I rarely read business books, but I bought this pamphlet titled The Art of Business, Why I Want to Be an Artist. The more we read about Ari, the more enthusiastic we became, too. In this pamphlet, Ari writes about the challenge of creating a life of your own design, even when other people raise their eyebrows in disbelief. That stopped me dead in my tracks. My business focuses on helping local newsrooms build audiences that will pay for journalism. And I've had people in the news business look at me like I've lost my mind. And I get that. I went to business school. But that's my problem with business school or business books. Business is too often talked about something that's cold and technical or winner take all. I don't want to disrupt. I don't want to crush it or crush anything for that matter. I want to build and share and teach. And that's why Ari's analogies of building communities and ecosystem fits me better. His writing opened up the door for me to reward my creative side and listen to my artistic impulses in my business. So when I approach my work as an artist, I have all the freedom in the world to make things happen that are energizing for me. I still have to do the less fun stuff too. Zingerman's rule number three is without good finance, you fail. And I know that rule because on the way home, we stopped at Zingerman's again and I bought one of Ari's other books, A Lapsed Anarchist's Approach to Building a Great Business. I highly recommend that book, but I also highly recommend the homemade graham crackers that Zingerman sells. This is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of work and business. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and that was Corey Brown on why we should have Ari Weinzweig on this show. And so, in a minute, we will. Don't go away, or quick, go get a snack. Come right back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
We're back. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. This is ZigZag. And there's a lot of talk right now about if it's possible to transform capitalism into a kinder, more inclusive version of itself, while still building competitive businesses and developing ambitious employees. My business partner, Jen Poyant, and I think about it all the time. Well, Ari Weinzweig has been doing it for decades with a portrait of a man who believes in the power of capitalism, community, and cream cheese. Here's Jen. As many podcast producers do, I got Ari to say his name. And where am I talking to? My name's Ari Weinzweig, and I'm sitting at Zingtrain, our training business, part of the Zingerman's community of businesses in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then asked him for a mic check with the question, what'd you have for breakfast? I don't actually eat breakfast, and today would be no exception. Never. (laughs) I don't eat lunch either. I just eat dinner. Ari's meal schedule is unorthodox. Later, he told me he's tasting food all day. A bite of coffee cake from the bakehouse, a nibble of new gelato flavor at the creamery. Because Zingerman's is a collective of small companies all under the Zingerman's name, each operated by one or more partners. Inc. Magazine once called Zingerman's the coolest small company in America. But before there was a candy company or a coffee roaster, Zingerman's started with a deli. And you founded, like you said, 1982 with a partner Mm -hmm. with a $20,000 bank loan. Is that right? It is right. And $2,000 that my grandmother lent us. No interest. In those days, it wasn't an insignificant amount of money. And also, no no interest in 1982 was a big deal because it was 18% interest instead of bank. That's crazy. Well, most things are actually crazy. We just become acclimated to them and stop thinking they're crazy. After many years of proven success with their deli, Ari and his partner decided they wanted to build up that interconnected network of independent businesses. Now the Zingerman's Collective includes a Korean restaurant, a vegetable farm, a mail-order business, and a consulting company that helps other companies envision what they want their businesses to be. The idea is all of these mini-companies profit and help each other's businesses offer the best products and services. Sounds cool, right? It also seems to work financially. According to Ari, the Zingerman's community of businesses brought in millions of dollars in sales last year. Our year just ended August or July 31st, so I don't know, 65 million. And as Corey mentioned, for some customers, the Zingerman's philosophies are part of what makes the food so delicious. Next to the deli counter, you'll find pamphlets and guides about the Zingerman's brand of leadership and management. But it all comes back to Ari and his belief that business is more than revenue and that envisioning what you want your company to become is crucial. When we opened, we did not know anything about visioning the way we do now, but I wrote an essay in part one of the business book, which is called 12 Natural Laws of Business, and it's my ever more strongly held belief that all healthy organizations of any size, scope, geography or whatever, uh, are living in harmony with those 12 natural laws. So they won't know them. They will not be able to list them, but they're doing it. And the first one on the list is that all 
successful, and I don't mean the people who make the most money, but the people who are either individually or collectively living the life they want to lead uh, in, a, in a meaningful and imperfect but productive way, have a vision of where they're going, right? And so sometimes it's in your head yeah. and, you know, like yours is now, and that's how we were when we opened. I mean, our vision would have included, had we written one, that we wanted something that was really unique and not a copy of something from New York or Detroit or Chicago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew we wanted a great place for people to work and really great food and service in a really down-to-earth setting. And we knew from the beginning uh, we only wanted one. I really like unique things, whether it's art or music. And I have a pamphlet that came out last December that's called The Art of Business, which sort of elucidates that belief even more uh, than I ever could have said it in 1982. But you know, which is just the idea that life and business and organization are like music or art and that the most interesting people to be, you know, around in those fields are the ones that are doing their own thing. But how then, if you're going to do something cool and weird and experimental, a lot of people say, well, that's hard to do when you're running a business because you still got to think about the bottom line and make them money. I don't think one has any, is precludes the other at all. Mm-hmm. I mean... How you prioritize what you value is your choice, right? So I'm trying to work more, not less. I'm going to run out of years and I got a lot to do. Other people are trying to work less. Fabulous. I don't judge them for it. It's not my place to tell them what to do. It's just my free choice to pursue what I'm pursuing in a way that's meaningful to me, right? And so, you know, like we're doing okay financially, but we're not like making the kind of money that we would make if we pursued the business in a different way. But, you know, we all have the issues of comparison, Yep. you know, and the emotional struggles around that. I've spent a lot of years working at it and, you know, whatever, therapy and self-awareness and, you know, to be able to say, like, whatever, man, it's not my, I don't have to live their life. I, I've come over the last three or four years to really look at business or, li- or organization more like an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Because most of the models that are used are either sports, which is fine in sports, but somebody always loses, mm-hmm. and I don't like that, or machines, uh, which you know is said all the time, like we got to get this under control, we got to get the engine humming, we got to get the gears greased, you know, and it's actually very dehumanizing and actually counter to nature. And when you look at organization more like an ecosystem, then you start to realize that success and failure coexist all the time, that failure is turned into health in a healthy ecosystem, uh, that every tiny little thing matters in a way that the hierarchical thinking that's so endemic and most all of us were raised with is actually not true in nature. You know, so a giant tree can be killed by a tiny insect, right? So. It's really more holistic. And then also my study and interest of anarchism is, you know, what anarchism is really is a way of treating people and a positive belief in human beings. And you started out, you know, having studied anarchist philosophy. It seems like Emma Goldman, from what I can tell, was a big influence on you as you studied I can tell you all about who she is because I got a whole new pamphlet that just came out called Going Into Business with Emma Goldman. And it's uh, Emma Goldman was 100 years ago or so called by J. Edgar Hoover, the most dangerous woman in America. So she was born in Lithuania. She came to the United States in 1885. She was quite 
outspoken. She went to jail a lot. She spoke a lot on anarchism, but also a lot on birth control, on women's rights, et cetera, et cetera. So she was expelled from the United States in 1919 uh, in the same way that a lot of issues, in fact, many of the <laughs> current social issues in 2019 are actually very close replications of what was happening in uh, 1919. It was the Red Summer. Uh, there was enormous uh, racial violence across the country. Women were fighting for their rights and respect in that era. So my my belief is that she actually was way ahead of her time and that you know they were reacting to a lot of the hierarchy and stuff of the Industrial Revolution, but that if you focused on how to create healthy communities based on a lot of the philosophies and principles she put forward, that they're really good business lessons. So one of them uh, is the belief that the means that we use to achieve an end have to be congruent with the end in order to work, right? So if we want to create a peaceful society, you can't do it through violence. If you want to create an organization in which people are engaged, you can't do it by ignoring them and having a meeting with only the top leaders. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's that's a big one. You know, she said, when we can't dream any longer, we die. I, I think that's true spiritually for sure. You know, nobody achieves greatness without a dream or a vision of where they want to go. If you have no hope for the future, you're never going to work hard. I mean, you know, it really lays out uh, quite an interesting philosophical framework for a, for a healthy progressive organization. I mean, I think the point is that our work is to help people become themselves. That's number one. Number two, our work is to help everybody learn to be a leader and think like a leader and lead. So leadership is not tied to hierarchy. Hierarchy gives it a title, but part of what I realized a few years ago, and it's in part two of the book, is that everybody that works here is responsible for leadership. So sometimes the newest employee you hired still needs to be the leader because the idea that the manager is going to have all the answers is silly. Mm -hmm. If we exclude people because they're new or we exclude people because they're 18 or we, you know, whatever, it's equally problematic to excluding people because they're black or they're Jewish or they're tall or whatever, you know. So I, I think the point is to have meaningful conversations as best you can with everybody. And yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes like it's all interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of helping people to be artists, creating their life is, you know, it's an honor to be able to contribute in some small ways to that, right? Absolutely. And do you sit down with your employees and do the futuring process as well? We teach it to everybody. It's funny because Manush and I did this just about a month ago together uh -huh. in my apartment. And I don't know if we did it exactly like you do it. I just know we just... Probably not, but that's okay. But, you know, we put up a bunch of paper on the walls and then did exactly what you talked about, mostly for the short term, for the next like couple right. of years. But we also did it for our personal lives. 50 years down the road, what we want our lives to look like. Because we both have kids and, you know, if you're going to run a small business or a medium-sized business or any business, you have to be able to kind of look at both. But it was very helpful. It helped us narrow down the type of partners that we potentially want to work with in the future, the type of projects we want to create, the type of people that we don't necessarily want to make deals with. So I'm just curious, mm -hmm. can you explain the process of preferred futuring for our listeners? Yeah. I mean, it's we, we do it in prose. So it's not a list and it's not pictures, although those can help you. But, 
we actually like sit down and you would describe, you pick the date in which you're going to be at the time of the vision. Mm -hmm. So it's not a timeless thing, it's time constrained. And then you would write a story basically about what your life is like collectively or individually with a whole bunch of details that are meaningful to you. So if how much money you make doesn't really matter, then don't worry about it. But if what's, you know, playing on the stereo makes a difference or what you're eating makes a difference or who you're with or what you're looking at makes a difference, then those go in there. So it's not a business plan, although it overlaps with the business mm -hmm. plan, but we generally use the metaphor, which I did not make up, of the person who uh, goes to the construction site of the Duomo in Milan, so which I think is late 15th century, and he comes to the first person who's working and says, what are you doing? And that, that guy says, I'm laying stone, comes to the next person, what are you doing? And he or she says, I'm building a cathedral. Mm -hmm. Right, so... You know, the obvious questions are physically, is there any difference in the work that two people are doing? And the obvious answer is no, they're both putting mortar and stone together and going home and coming back and doing it over and over again. But emotionally, what's the difference? The difference is when you see something amazing that you're working to build, even if it's years in the future, you have a sense of purpose, you have a sense of understanding how the tiny things you do today will impact the future. Your energy is higher, you your care is higher, your commitment is higher. So the vision is basically the future you want to create. It's true for your personal life. It's true for your work. It's true for any project that you're going to do. If you don't know where you're going, yeah. it's hard to get where you want to go. It's just most of the world has been trained to think of what's wrong, who's in the way, who's getting in the way, who's not doing their part, who's at fault. And this is a process of actually imagining the future that you want mm -hmm. without worrying in the moment about how you're going to get there. That comes later. And so... Uh, we are working now organizationally on our vision for 2032. Mm -hmm. Do you think outside of running a, a specific type of business like the one you're doing, and also, you know, you write prolifically, of course, on management, so that's another facet of creating change in the world, but do you think um, beyond business, America or our world, we just need to be doing this more collectively as a society too, and perhaps as a democracy? Well, I think it's a universal human skill and it's a natural lot. Like you can't get to greatness if you don't have a shared vision that you believe in. Mm. And so now my anarchism will tell you that the whole idea of nation states is made up and they don't actually exist other than on paper. <laughs> and not saying trying to be negative, but the belief that somebody in Alaska has anything to do with somebody in Alabama any more than they have to, the Alabama has to do with... Antigua, you know, is, is kind of weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the idea you could get 300 million people to agree on a vision, like I'm having a hard time. It took a year to get 21 partners to agree on a draft with a lot of arguments. So now try to get 300 million people to all agree on a vision. It's not going to happen. Now, I don't know what to do about that, but that's part of the problem is there's, A, no one's really even offering a vision. Yeah. <laughs> with all due respect, even to the people I like, their beliefs better than the ones I don't like, they're still not offering a vision. They're mostly offering solutions to problems, which is the antithesis of visioning. Seems like you, you can kind of do whatever you want now. No, well, anybody can do whatever they want. There's just consequences. Yeah, but don't you feel like a sense of security just in general no. that you can pretty much do? Go out? You don't, No. even now? No. Why? Because <laughs> that's how I feel. I mean, feelings are, you don't have to justify. I went to therapy enough to know feelings just exist. 
number one. Number, number two, it's true. There's no safe place. I mean, we could be out of business in a year. It's not that hard to go yeah. out of business. In fact, it's incredibly easy to go out of business. So I'm going to always have that feeling. It's only a year in for me, but I can be rest assured I'll have that feeling 20 years from now, hopefully. Well, a lot of my stress went down when I realized that it was always going to be imperfect. And I used to have this image that like, if we succeeded, it would be like laying on this mountain pool in Colorado in the sunny day, you know, looking up at this beautiful mountain view. And then eventually I realized it was actually like whitewater rafting. <laughs> <laughs> And there's like 30 seconds where you feel like things are going good, but then some email complaint comes or some bad number shows up or, you know, some employee, you know, one employee loves you and the next one thinks everything sucks. And one customer says, this is the greatest meal I ever had. And the next one's like, you guys clearly don't care about quality. And like, it all happens in three minutes. Right. Every day. That's why we call it zigzag. Right. Well, that's that's the reality. And that's where, again, you know, coming back to the ecosystem, it's all happening at once, right? And, you know, there's dying branches on healthy trees. And it's not either, like forests are not successes. Like <laughs> they just are. And, you know, even in a healthy forest, there's things going on and people forget. But like, you know, whoever wins the NBA championship, whoever won last year, Toronto, like they still missed a lot of shots in the game that they won. Yeah. And they still made bad plays. It's just no one's thinking about it because they won. But in life, it's not like that. And so how you treat your kid when they're seven matters. And how you treat them this afternoon matters. It's really how you treat them today over and over and over and over again that adds up to something big. And so when companies fail, I think hierarchical thinking and, and a quest for drama leads people to look for the big headline. Sure. Like you're a failure, you're a success. Those are labels that are laid on people. So anyway, I'm still anxious about it. And I think when you stop being anxious, then it leads to failure because it's complacency. And, you know, over worrying dominates your life too. So somewhere in the middle is a healthy level of anxiety. <laughs> And, and also, I guess I would say that there's a difference between anxiety yeah. of pursuing what you believe in and not knowing you can get there, which is the opposite end of the continuum from the anxiety of doing what you don't believe in because somebody else told you you should. You know, it's the anxiety of going to work in a workplace that you don't share the values. It's the anxiety of being in a relationship you don't want to be in. It's the anxiety of working on stuff you don't believe is good, but you need a paycheck. And that's where burnout comes from, in my belief, yep. not from working too much. Thank you so much, Ari. Thank you. Ari says that if you want to get in touch, you can reach him at ari at zingermans.com. Also, all those books he talked about are published and sold at Zingerman's, so you can find them on Zingerman's website, but not on Amazon. We're going to have a quick break. Then I'll be back with Manoush to tell you more about our own visioning experiment, the one I mentioned earlier. Be right back. Okay, we're back. It's Manoush. And now I'm with Jen. What? Jen, that was awesome. Oh, thank you. Did you like talking to Ari? I did. I, you know, something about it was a little nerve-wracking, and I'm not sure if it was um, it was just because I've been a little rusty. I haven't done that many interviews. He's or, also like a huge rock star in this one particular small business world. Yeah, I mean, that like, doesn't, no offense to Ari, that doesn't matter to me. It's, <laughs> it just doesn't. But it was, he also is like, 
He has this way about him that I haven't experienced with an interviewee in a long time where, like, you just don't know where he's going to go. You know, like, how he's going to react to something and, like, where you're going to lead. And in a way, that's great. I think it's good. It kind of kept me on my toes in a way that I didn't expect. Bagels, anarchy, lots of choices. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. He's like a little bit of a live wire. I really enjoyed learning about Zingerman's and hearing. I, I really, I think I would really enjoy eating at Zingerman's is the other thing. Like I want, I'm going to be in Michigan take next a year. Trip. We got to go there. Yeah. I'm hungry just thinking about it. Okay. So a couple things that I want to talk about. One is we did our own visioning thing, which let's get to that in a minute though. But there was this op-ed written by Mark Benioff. He's the CEO, co-CEO actually, of Salesforce. And he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. So he's like worth, you know, stupid amounts of money, crazy amounts of money. And the opinion piece that he wrote for the Times was called, We Need a New Capitalism. So kind of similar in many ways Mm -hmm. to what Ari was doing. His is definitely a different brand of capitalism, things that we have talked about in various ways here on the show. Go back and listen to all. I mean, not just... All of it, but particularly season four, don't you think? I do. So his whole thesis is like, okay, I've made all this money. Now I have a responsibility. And so do you, other big-time tech and business leaders, managers, CEOs, et cetera, et cetera. He says business leaders need to embrace a broader vision of their responsibilities by looking beyond shareholder return and also measuring their stakeholder return. But I think what Ari was saying is like, well, why not make the shareholders and the stakeholders one in the same? Mm -hmm. Like, why not make everyone part owners of this whole thing so everyone benefits? Whereas I think Benioff's thing is spend the money on the community, tax the big rich people. Mm -hmm. But he's not saying there shouldn't be billionaires, right? I think Ari, like, could have probably been a billionaire, but... He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Exactly. He cares about making badass stuff, like cool, unique things, and treating people well in the process, and everybody gets to make some money and have a nice life. That's my impression of what he seems to care about, at least. Yeah, and in parts of the interview, we couldn't include it all, but like I heard him talking about the concept of art, the fact that there's one painting and Mm -hmm. it is beautiful and amazing. And if you made that, you can feel good, even if you're not replicating or scaling and all of those things. The personal satisfaction really matters to him. And look, you know, if Mark Benioff wants to come on (laughs) ZigZag, that'd be amazing. And I'd love to talk about like what his version for capitalism looks like. Yep. Meanwhile, we'll link to it in the newsletter. But I think it's cool that the conversation is being had, right? Yeah, I do too. It's exciting. I mean, the thing that I find fascinating about the Zingermans and these types of models is that the fact that you could have $65 million in revenue around that in a year for a collective of businesses— in a town. And that that's real. Like that really affects like the local economy in a very interesting way. And yet it seems in the context of like these billion dollar companies running over our larger national economy to see it working in a small, sorry, I just think it's strange that that seems small, mm. right? In our society, yeah, like true. it's not small that the impact of what that type of business model can do for a community is fascinating. Yeah. And yet, I don't know if there's a dissonance right now in the in the culture of business that's different mm-hmm. and, like, whether this might seem quaint. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and it makes me think that the conversation is turning to what do you give up, right? Because that's the question. Mark Benioff is saying in the article, you need to tax me. 
and I'm willing to give it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's not, you know, play too many small violins for the man. He's worth billions of dollars. Right. So, yay, I'm glad he's willing to give it up. But I think what Ari in some ways gave up was like he could have just been the head of his company and made all the decisions and not have to go through this process of negotiating. Like he was talking about having to negotiate with all the partners and Can you imagine having that many partners, like business partners? I mean, all the conversations and negotiating and drafts of like partnership agreements over and over. I mean, that would drive me freaking bananas. But that's what you give up, right? You give up like the ability to make efficient decision-making, like, because it's a collective. Yeah, I kind of get the sense, though, that he thinks that that's interesting. Like, the, you know? <laughs> He's measuring his success in different ways, Yeah, for that sure. those conversations are probably really fascinating. There was another moment, too, where I was like, do you have really high turnover? Everything is like, well, it depends on, like, which type of business you're thinking about. Are you thinking about, like, in the larger economy or just in the restaurant industry? And then he said, basically, what I've come to is that we have really low turnover if you compare it to the restaurant and service industry. Because essentially, if you're going to join this weird cooperative model, you're kind of in or you're out. Like you get it and you're into it or you're not. Mm. And it's I, a lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, we're doing it differently. And the reason it works is because the people that like, like join are, are in it. And I have a feeling that works in, in the same way for the business partners that join as well, like the business owners, well, not just the service workers. I might need to order some Zingerman's for... Some Christmas gifts and Hanukkah gifts. The mail order yeah, section? Um, I went and I want to go to the Korean There's restaurant. Some, right? <laughs> it looks awesome. All right. Kim, you look cool. We love talking about food. <laughs> when we're not talking about this, we're talking about like how to get our eyebrows look good and then like what we want to eat next. But immediately even that conversation led to like a questioning of like a billion dollar makeup startup that's doing quite well these days. Oh, I know. We were like, Glossier, what are your thoughts on the Vanity Fair (laughs) article that profiles their CEO? I'll link to that as well because that is interesting. It was really good. It was a really interesting profile. She's a little terrifying. I want to, before we go, just simply mention that you and I have been thinking about the vision, not thinking, like doing the visioning thing. Yeah. And I feel like it's not like you do it once. You got to do it over and over again. But just to, could you just describe what happened? I believe it was in early July. That's crazy. I know. Months. Yes. So you came out to Rockaway, uh, where I live, and came to my apartment. And I took down some of the artwork on my walls. And literally took a bunch of parchment paper and you brought Sharpies and different rainbow colors. And first of all, you asked me a bunch of questions that made me feel very squirmy and uncomfortable. <laughs> first of all, <laughs> I, I banished us to different rooms in your apartment and we had to write on it. I'll read the, the first exercise. We called it the vision. Take 15 timed and uninterrupted minutes to imagine your ideal life five years from now. What are you wearing? Where are you sitting? Who is with you? What's on your mind? To be fair, this is not, I didn't get this idea. Um, I did this with someone like, Mm -hmm. I guess five years ago, I Mm -hmm. did it with someone and it really helped me. She Mm -hmm. did it. It was crazy. She was like, pretend you're 80 years old. It's your birthday. Where are you sitting? What are you wearing? What are you eating? Who's next to you? What are they saying? It really like is First of all, it takes a lot of discipline to sit your butt down and do it because it takes you to some... It's very vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable exercise. That's a good way to put it. I felt very vulnerable doing it. Like, I didn't want to necessarily admit those things out loud, especially to someone that's, like, so... That's so part of my life. Like, because it creates these, like... It's, you know, it's a partnership, so you have to think about, well, how would that work in the context of this conversation? And... 
And it's just hard to admit those things because you have to admit to yourself some things about yourself. That you want. Yeah. And that maybe you didn't even know were there. Like I wrote down that like maybe I've written another book. I was like, what? Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. I was shocked. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that book would be, but apparently five years from now, I would have figured it out, I guess. I mean, what I like was that Ari said, when you do your visioning thing, don't think about the obstacles. Don't think about a person who's going to take issue with what your vision is. Just get to the vision first and you can work backwards almost. Yeah. He also said, if everybody, the important part is agreeing about what the vision is. Oh, for a business perspective. We did this just as individuals. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the first step. That was the first step. And then we went on to talk about how our vision of the future aligns with the trajectory of our lives right now. And, I mean, we just went on and on. But at the end of the day, maybe this is what the book is. (gasps) Maybe it's, like, the day that I, like, laid out for us. Maybe that's the book. I don't know. I think it totally could be. I think it's fascinating because it also really reflects both of our personal journeys and it reflects our business partnership and creative partnership journey. It's fascinating. It's a really key, interesting moment. Like that was a very vivid day. I have vivid images from it. That's a good thing. It's called envisioning. I mean, we also took pictures. (laughs) But And I I won't get into the details, but one of the things I do find fascinating is one of the things we had to do was think about our values as a business and what we're trying, which we talk about incessantly on this show. But so sorry to each other (laughs) for doing that, but it's really important to us. And but then saying, okay, well, those are the values. This is the type of company we want to build, which is unusual, but that's fine. But what kind of partners? Well, that's key, right? Right. Would we? It, which is essentially, you know, I I imagined. I don't. I don't know for sure, but I imagine they had to think about that when they were doing their own visioning exercise at Zingerman's. Yeah, but us doing that, we ended up with this bizarre list, really interesting list of all these different types of partner, like media partnerships. Can that I just want to work with? Hang on a sec. I want to make it clear, like, we had come to a point where we're like, we're at this, we're at a crossroads yeah. with our company, yep. and we, you know, doing it alone and small is really hard. Yep. And so we decided, how do we create our own collective or find partners yep. that we can work with to help us sustain, essentially? Absolutely. And grow. And grow. Yeah. But grow sustainably. Correct. (laughs) And so we wrote down this list of like partners, pros and cons, and what we would have to give up in some of those cases, many, every case really, because that's life. And, um, and what we would get and who we, and who most importantly aligns with what we with our values and vision. Exactly. Um, so yeah, let's not get into the details. We won't, but I will say that the, um, process was illuminating and it, to me, even though the road isn't necessarily clear when, once you make those decisions, it's clearer for you and I in staying like in step with each other. And it creates this sense of confidence that we know we're moving in the same direction, which is really interesting for a partnership. And I get the sense that that's what they did. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think also for me, though, I was like, oh, my God, my oldest kid's going to be leaving home in five years. Like, just life things that also will affect a business. Sure. You yeah, know? And, of course. Yeah. It all goes so fast, John. <laughs> all right. Should we go? Yes. Okay. So on the next episode, we are talking about couples who work. We're both members of a partnership, romantic partnership, have 
jobs and all work and how are they making it work and in the newsletter i I referred to them as power couples and some of you got really mad at me so i'll include some of your voicemail memos i love it when you guys get mad at me because then that's what a conversation is right like yeah oh can i ask a quick question about this that i haven't asked you in editorial meetings oh yeah does that include part like would you include partners that were like stay-at-home parents probably not no it's it's people who work um, like pro- you're talking about professional careers. Professional careers. They may have decided to become a stay-at-home person. That's what I mean. I guess. During a transition period, yes. you'll hear all it. Right. Just cool. wait. I know you haven't Not listened yet. to the interview yet. Mm-mm. If you want to get all the links that I have mentioned that I will be including in the newsletter, if you're not signed up yet, you should be. It comes out every other Thursday morning because we know your inbox is very full. Um, So please go to StableG.com. That is S-T-A-B-L-E-G.com. And sign up. It's super easy. We will not spam you. Corey has made sure we're not spamming you because, Jen, did you know that I think you were on this this last call Mm -hmm. where he went through and looked at all the people who had signed up for the newsletter but had never opened it. He was like, do these people really want your newsletter? Let's let them go. I was like, oh, that actually is kind of nice. Yes, and it's counterintuitive because those quote-unquote numbers of how many people subscribe matters in our in our ecosystem, but he's saying it's not quality. No, and he's saying like what you want is the percentage of people who open the newsletter to be really high because it means that they really, really want to be there with you. And so... That really was, yeah, it was a little bit of a mind-blowing moment. I'm going to go now. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant with help from Marcy Thompson. Matt Boynton is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. And many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering, too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Say your name. I'm Jen Poyant. She's just she's looking at her phone. I'm taking a picture. I can't hear you. You're not in front of the mic. I'm Jen Poyant. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) It's for the social.